At university, uh, like many students, I did many different jobs to try and earn a bit of money to buy necessities like uh, pot noodles and nights out on the town. And, uh, and I had different jobs over, over the, the three or four years at university. I worked in Dunn's Stores uh, supermarket here in Portadown, which closed. Then I worked in British Home Stores in Belfast, which closed. Then I worked in the Levi's store in Belfast, which closed. Uh, and then I, I worked in Coca-Cola, which is still open and uh, thriving. And so it wasn't just my, my fault. But one of perhaps the strangest jobs I had was doing police identity parades. Yes, you did hear that right. Those lineups where you have uh, seven or eight people and the, the convict or the suspect uh, in the middle. I, I, have you never wondered where they get the other blokes and girls for those lineups? They need to find them from somewhere. And uh, myself and the three guys I lived with in Belfast discovered that you could actually make a little bit of money doing this. And so uh, all you had to do was to go down to Donegal Pass Police Station and sign up. And they probably did some sort of check on you. Um, who knows? And, uh, and then you would get a call uh, to, to go down to the police station at a certain time for, for an identity parade. And uh, if you're kind of average height and average build like I am, and, and just sort of brown hair, you got uh, called quite a lot, actually. My flatmate, who was six foot three and a ginger hair, not so often. Um, and, and so it was wonderful because you got 10 points just for showing up. Um, at the door, they would give you ten pounds, which for some of you might not sound like a lot, but this was 1997. Ten pounds was like a million pounds back then, and uh, and then after a certain amount of time, for every extra 15 minutes they kept you, you got another two pounds, and so you were proud that this thing would go on forever. Um, and what would happen, you'd all be in the room and you'd all be sort of sitting beside each other. Uh, you'd go in through one door and then they would bring the convict, I mean the suspect, through another door. And you were always hoping they wouldn't end up beside you because he might have knives or something. Or he's just, you know, you just didn't know what you were standing beside. And uh, they would place him somewhere and then you would all stand up and you, you were facing two-way glass or two-way mirror. And you knew at the other side the witness was there or the, the victim was there uh, and they were looking at you. And uh, I have to be honest, the first two or three times I did it, I was kind of nervous that I would get picked. I, I, I don't know, I just, I was like sweating profusely, which doesn't help because it makes you look even, even more guilty in a situation like that. But I was actually really nervous. And then after two or three times of doing it, I realized, you know what? They're paying me to do this. I'm the employee, not the suspect. And so I went into the identity parade with a very confident identity. And that identity was, I am innocent. You know, you were, you were always tempted to kind of go, it's him. Um, but uh, but I, I changed my identity once I, once I realized I am innocent. I am not a suspect and I am not a convict. That changed how I approached the entire situation. And today we're going to be thinking about identity. We're going to be thinking about how our identity as Christians, how our identity as people in the kingdom of God, as followers of Christ, impacts how we live and how we interact and, and, and behave in the world around us. Like I say, we're looking at this little series called Second Choice World. It takes place about... 605 BC, about 600 years before Jesus, God's people, Israel and Judah, had separated. Judah were, were the more devoted ones, but over time they began to drift away from God. They began to go their own way. They began to turn their back on God. And it was really in three things. It was an idolatry, following the other gods around them. 
It was an immorality. It was in, in behavior that wasn't uh, biblical. It was in behavior uh, that, that God wouldn't allow. And it was an injustice, injustice. They stopped caring about the poor and needy. They stopped caring about the orphan and the widow. And God had sent prophets, men like Jeremiah and other prophets to warn them and say, this is what's going to happen if you don't turn around, if you don't come back to me. I'm actually going to take my hand of blessing and protection off you. Because when you stop confessing sin and start celebrating sin in a culture, God will not tolerate that. But they thought they knew better. They decided to go their own way. And after a while, God just says, okay, I will give you what you want. And so he lifts his hand of blessing and protection off them. And as he does that, the Babylonians, this, uh, this empire, this, this strong nation comes down. And they just they, they wreck the place. But they, they, they go into the temple and they take some of the, the sacred items. But they also do something else. They bring back some of the very best people, particularly the young men. Good-looking, educated, smart, young men. Why didn't they bring back older people? Because younger people are easier to influence. When you get a bit older, you're more set in your ways. You're less flexible. You're less likely to change. Younger people, these guys that actually the word is lads, young lads, they were teenagers, they were 15, 16 years old. They brought back the very best of the young lads to train them up. And it was smart. They wanted to train them and indoctrinate them in the, in the Babylonian way of thinking, in the Babylonian education, in the Babylonian way of government, so that as they got older, they would be able to be leaders, not just in Babylon, but be able to go out to the other places in the empire that Babylon had taken over and bring the Babylonian way of life. There's something about youth work even in that, isn't there? That we want our young people who are being shaped by the culture to be indoctrinated. I know that's an awful word, but we want to teach them and indoctrinate them with the Christian faith so that wherever they go into the world, they're able to bring the kingdom of God. They're able to bring influence. That's why we have hope kids and hope youth. That's why we invest in our young people, because we know that the world is indoctrinating them 166 hours a week, and we get about two hours with them. And we want to pour into them so that they can go out and make a radical difference in the world. And so God's people are carried off into Babylon. And, uh, and, and four of them, four of these young men were called Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these young guys from pretty privileged upper-class backgrounds suddenly find themselves wrenched out of their normal, comfy, cushy existence in Jerusalem and brought into a country and a culture that is completely foreign to them. Different language, different dress, different music, different gods, different food, different philosophy of life. Everything was different. Jerusalem and Babylon could not have been any more different. They didn't choose it. In fact, these four were actually pretty godly guys, as we're going to see. They were probably not the ones rebelling against Yahweh, rebelling against the God of Israel. Yet through no fault of their own, through the sins of other people, they end up in a second choice world. And we talked about that second choice world. Your second choice world is that place that you never wanted to be. You didn't choose it, you didn't plan it, you didn't pray for it, and you didn't dream of it. It wasn't what you were longing for your future. 
And, so, and all of us spend seasons and episodes in a second choice world. Life is never all first choice. In fact, life is rarely first choice. Some of us spend short times in our second choice world, and some of us spend lifetimes in our second choice world. And sometimes we can see it coming, it happens gradually, and sometimes it happens suddenly. You get a phone call at 3 a.m., and suddenly your world is turned upside down. Your 16-year-old daughter who's dating a guy that you don't like says, Mom, Dad, can you sit down? I want to have a conversation with you. And in that moment, everything changes. You're having a, a shower and you find a lump that wasn't there before and within a few days the results come back and everything changes. You're driving along and somebody goes through a red light and they hit you straight on and in that moment everything changes. A virus comes in and the shops close and the schools close and the churches close and Everything closes and suddenly you end up in a situation for almost a year that you didn't want, you didn't choose, you didn't pray for. You end up in a second choice world. And when you end up in that place, you can either hunker down and get depressed and get angry and get frustrated and just wait for it to finish. Or you can thrive. You can actually rise up, you can step up, you can, you can take the initiative, you can... My friend Alan Scott, when we were at the Causeway Coast, whenever you would end up in a situation like the second choice world, his question was always this, what is God making available to you right now? And I've always found that really helpful. When you find yourself where you can't, you have no control over where you are, but you can control who you are. He would ask, what is God making available to you in this place? And we will see that these four lads from Jerusalem were in a place that they didn't want to be, and they were going to spend a very long time there. So instead of sulking like teenage boys do and slamming the bedroom door, they decide, you know what, how can we thrive here? But to thrive here is going to mean that we're going to have to have certain standards, we're going to have to have certain codes that we live by, and there's going to be certain morals that we keep. That's what we're going to be thinking about. So look at, at verses 5 to 7. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, which is Kachi. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So these four lads find themselves in a totally alien culture. Dislocated and disorientated, it's an incredibly pagan culture. And there was huge pressure to conform. This was not Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, they had worship of Yahweh. They had little, just images of, of, just, uh, of, 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 the, of the history of, of God's work through the Jewish people. They had reminders everywhere they went about Yahweh. In Babylon, they had none of that. It's a bit like a goldfish asking, what's water? Because they're in it all the time. In Babylon, this culture they were completely immersed in, and there was no way out of it. And it wasn't going to be an overnight visit. They would actually spend the rest of their lives there. And so here's what we're going to be thinking about in the, in the next few weeks. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, I believe we are now living in Babylon. 
We're people who belong to the kingdom of God, but increasingly we live in a culture which is moving away from God. I don't think you need to be a prophet to see that. We are living increasingly in a world and in a culture that has almost become anti-God, if not anti-God already, and has got ungodly and unbiblical values. We live in a culture here, particularly in Northern Ireland, but in, in, uh, some of you watching in other places, where Christians used to be respected, where, where their values were appreciated and generally accepted, sometimes, quite honestly, to a ridiculously legalistic extent. Like, I remember as a kid, in Brownstown Park, they would tie up the swings on a Sunday because they felt like to go in the swings was to be working or exercising on a Sunday. So the local council here would tie up the swings. Anybody remember that? Yeah, or I feel like I'm the oldest dude in the room here, and I know I'm not, okay? Like, I I remember if you played football on a Sunday, the neighbors would tut-tut at you because you were playing sport on a Sunday. Um, And then things shifted, and Christians went from being respected to kind of being made fun of and tolerated a bit. You know, they were kind of quirky. Our views about morals and sex and and, and, and just about life and and, and marriage were, were, you know, quaint, and, and we just kind of made fun of in the media. But that has all changed today. And now, instead of being sort of tolerated and quirky, there's a growing anti Christian sentiment. Christian views are not even tolerated, but they're actually seen as bigoted, as dangerous, and as hateful to other people. We're being described as homophobic. We're being described as uh, bigoted and nasty. And if we in any way refuse to compromise our faith, we're seen as being people who are hateful towards other people. If you refuse to make a wedding cake because of your personal preferences and, and your personal convictions and you own a business, you're called everything. And there's huge pressure to conform. It will get to the stage in the next few years, I would imagine, where if people like me refuse to marry some people, we will be labeled the same. It's a bit like the, the old story of how do you boil a frog. Now, no frogs were hurt in the making of this sermon. Okay? But I'm sure some of you have heard it. If you throw a frog into boiling water, that frog will immediately jump out. But if you put it into lukewarm water and gradually turn up the temperature, the frog goes, oh, this is nice. Having a bath. Then it starts to bubble and it thinks, wow, jacuzzi time. And eventually, if you keep turning up the heat, the frog boils to death. That's what our culture is doing. Very slowly, they're increasing the temperature. They're increasing the pressure on Christians. They're increasing the, the legislation and the law to make it harder and harder for us to be a people who obey and live the word of God. And it is only going to continue to increase in my lifetime. Things that were once considered shameful just 20, 30 years ago are now openly celebrated. There's pressure to conform and compromise. Media, social media, news, uh, YouTube, TV, music, legislation are all constantly telling us this is what you should think. This is what you should believe. This is how you should see the world. This is normal. And if you don't accept this, then you're unloving, you're unkind, you're nasty, you're narrow, you're ignorant, you're intolerant, and we will find a way to shut you up and shut you down. So just toe the line, Christians. Just fall into line, just shut up, do what you're told, and we'll all be okay. 
And so we find ourselves as Christians suddenly as a strange minority in a world that's following a completely different value system. Where the politically correct view is the only view. And anyone who deviates from that view must not be heard. They must be silenced. And everything is tolerated except someone who doesn't tolerate what everyone believes. It's Babylon. It's a second choice world. You know, it's interesting. First Peter 2 describes Christians in the first century as aliens and foreigners. Just like Daniel and the guys were aliens and foreigners in Babylon. We're actually getting back to the way the church started out. Where the church and the state weren't united, where there was no major influence that the church had over the culture. Where the church were this minority, this cult almost, that were persecuted. And if you were a Christian, you were really a Christian. Otherwise, you just went with the flow. And while there's, while there's negative things I see about the way our culture is going, in some ways I'm glad because you know what it does away with? That horrible thing called nominal Christianity. Like nominal Christianity, those two words should not go together. Nominal and Christian, there's no such thing. You're either a born-again, sold-out-for-Christ Christian, or you're not a Christian at all. There's no such thing as nominal Christianity. But we had that here, where you just go to church every week. That church-going thing, and it's the respectable thing, and you wear your Sunday best. That is going away for good. And for those who are following Christ, they will stand out more and more. And as they stand out more and more, we will find more and more pressure and probably persecution coming in the days ahead. We live in this world, but our identity, our home is elsewhere. We are citizens of heaven, people of the kingdom of God. So what do we do? Well, there's two things Christians typically do. The first one is separation. They isolate themselves from the world. They go into their little ghetto, their little Christian ghetto where they all dress the same, think the same, read the same, talk the same, and they stay in that little ghetto just waiting for Jesus to come back and calling out the wrath of God upon the sinners out there. That's one way, that, 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 that isolation. The other way is accommodation, where instead of, of hiding from the world, we just become part of it. We just go with the flow. We change what the Bible says. Well, it didn't really say that because we want people to like us because if we can just have enough people out there like us, maybe they'll become Christians too. And that never works either. So if it's not isolation and it's not accommodation, what's the alternative? I believe it's infiltration. Isn't that what Jesus said? You are the salt of the world. What does salt do? Salt on its own is not much good. It has to infiltrate the food. Light on its own is not much good. It has to infiltrate the darkness. And God has called us not to isolate and not to accommodate, but to infiltrate this world, to bring his kingdom into the darkest places and to bring his flavor, his, 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 his goodness, his love into those places where it is missing. And I believe that's what we see in Daniel. What time is it? I'm hoping we're going to get... Okay, we're going to skip through this next bit quite quickly. So... Look at verse 7 with me again. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. I always called it Abednego. Did you? It's actually Abednego. Okay. But I'm going to probably say Abednego because that sounds cooler. Um, 
So these four guys arrive from Jerusalem, and every time they say their names, they're making a statement. Because all four of their names either have the word Elohim or Yahweh in them in the original Hebrew. So every time they, they speak to each other or somebody addresses them, it is declaring that there is one God and his name is Yahweh. And that's not going to work very well in Babylon. And so what they do, it's very subtle, but they change their names. And I'm not going to go into to every name and what they change it to. But basically they take Yahweh or Elohim completely out of their names and they replace them with the gods of Babylon. I don't know how you got your name. Were you called after a family relative? Was it a name that was passed down? Was it just popular at the time? Was it through? I, I was called, my name's actually Stephen Craig Cooney, which my son finds amusing because every month or two he'll ask me, why are you called Craig when you were called Stephen? And I blame my parents for that. Um, but, but I was called Craig because of James Craig, the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, who incidentally Craig Avon is named after. So I'm actually the king of Craig Avon um, in one sense. Uh, so there you go. But if you were called something different, it wouldn't make that big a deal. Like if you're Robert and you're called John, it's not a big fuss. If you're Margaret and you're called Karen, it's not a big deal. If you're Gillian and you're called Gertrude, you're not going to be happy about that. But, but if they change your name, it's not a big deal. But in that time, in that biblical time, your name really meant something. Your name was an identifier of who you were, who you belonged to, and the culture and the God that you worship. Your name was prophetic. Your name wasn't just about your family. It was about your identity and your destiny. Your na- That's why Jesus sometimes changed names. Simon became Peter. Saul became Paul. It wasn't just that they didn't like the name Simon. It was because there was something symbolic and significant. And so by changing these guys' names to the names of pagan gods, what they were doing very subtly and very slowly was saying, we own you. That your former life, your former God doesn't own you anymore. Your new God owns you. Which is, what strikes me as really interesting is this, that they don't kick up a big fuss. You see, some of us wouldn't have lasted three days in Babylon because we would have went, you're not calling me that. And we'd have made big badges with our Hebrew names on them. And anytime anybody called us our Babylonian name, we would have corrected them and we would have ended up thrown to the lands before we even got past chapter one. For some reason, these guys are willing to accept these names. And you know what I think it is? I think they came to the conclusion that you can label us whatever we want, but what you call us, we do not have to live up to that identity. The world can label you as a Christian however they want, but you do not have to live up to that identity. You have an identity as a son or daughter of God. You're a child of the King of Kings. You're a blood-bought child of God. You're a, 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 a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are a son or daughter of the king. That's your identity. And so they can call us whatever we want, but once we're secure in who we are and our identity as children of God, it really doesn't matter. You see, they could have picked a fight, but I think they just decided, you know what? This is a hill not worth dying on. Some of us will die on every hill. And as Christians, I think we need, to, we need to learn this. There's some things that are worth dying for and some aren't. You see, you can win the battle and lose the war. 
That's something particularly over the last three, four, five months I've thought about a lot. There are certain battles I've been tempted to fight, and I might have won them, but I'd have lost the war in the bigger picture. And there are some hills that we should die on, and there are some hills that are just not worth dying on. And these guys decided they can call us whatever we want. You know what? There was four of them. I bet you when they were together, they didn't call each other by their Babylonian names. You know, we don't even know if they knew each other before they got to Babylon, these four, Daniel and these other three guys. But there's something about being in a foreign culture that bonds people, isn't there? <laughs> Just think about Northern Ireland, people in Benidorm. You meet someone from, you know, the other side of town that you wouldn't touch with a barge pole back home, but you meet them in Benidorm and you're having dinner and drinks every other night. There's something about being in that other culture. Well, you know, the first thing Irish people do when they go to America... Find an Irish pub. You know, there's, like, there's just that sense of comfort being around people who are just like us. And there was something about, about these four people that they might have been isolated in Babylon, but they had each other. And I bet you when they were together, they called each other by their names that glorified Yahweh. And so they decided, you know what, we're gonna, if we're going to die, if we're going to stand firm, if we're going to be inflexible on something, it's not going to be in what they call us because they can call us whatever they want, but it doesn't define who we are. Because we know whose we are and we belong to Yahweh. It's about picking your battles. But look at what we read in verse 5. And this was the next challenge. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. On the surface to me, this sounds brilliant. Babylonian was a real, Babylon was a real foodie culture. So these, these weren't cheese sandwiches or beans on toast every night. This was the king's food. This was Michelin star food every night. This was fillet steak with pepper sauce and potatoes. potatoes. This was the nicest fish on the... Uh, this, was, this was potatoes. This was gravy. This was ketchup. Heinz ketchup, not your cheap ketchup. This was not Buckfast. This was the finest Cabernet Sauvignon. Only the best. You'd have thought, bring it on. But look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. For Daniel and his friends, there was something about the food and wine that they just couldn't accept. Yes, you can call us whatever name you want, but the food and wine... That's where we're drawing a line. And we don't know what it was. I mean, the obvious thing most of you would think is that somehow the food and wine was dedicated to the foreign gods, to the pagan gods. That could be the case. Scholars actually have no idea. But Daniel says, I resolved not to defile myself. In other words, in his heart, there was something, if he would have eaten this food and wine, that he would have felt unclean. And so he resolved, he determined, he set the course of his heart to say, I will not do that. There are certain things I will do. There's certain areas I will be flexible in. And then there's certain lines that I simply can not cross and I will not compromise. And you know, to some other people, I'm sure that felt ridiculous. I'm sure some other Jerusalem people thought, just eat the food, drink the wine. Quit causing a fuss. It's just a bit of food and wine. You know, just like, wise up, Daniel. Stop making a fuss. Why don't you just go along with it? And some other people probably thought, you know what, you do whatever the king says because that's what we're to do. Anything the government says, that's what we're to do. So just go along with it no matter what they say. 
Just go along with it. Stop causing a fuss over nothing. Obey the authorities over you. But for them, they had this deep conviction that it would not be right for them. And so they go to the chief official and they say, is there any way we can avoid this? Is there any way that we can get out of this, this food thing? But notice what they do. They do it privately and they do it politely. And I think that's really important. They didn't stop, start kicking over tables in the kitchen. They didn't start throwing the meat back at them, saying, keep your stinking defiled meat. They went to them privately and they went to them politely. There's something about that for, as Christians we need. Because sometimes we're really, you can be, you can be right without being righteous. <laughs> and sometimes we need that, that, that our values and our morals and our standards are right, but the way we portray them are wrong. They were polite and they were private. They went, look, is there any way we can get out of this? We're not going to create a big fuss about it. We're not going to create a big stink. And it says that they actually had favor with this guy. Look at what it says. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned you this food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So he says, look, I I see where you're coming from, guys. But here's the problem. The king has told me to give you this. And if you guys look all weak and all like wimpy in 10 days and every or or in a few weeks and everybody else looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm the one whose head is going to roll. And so he goes, I can't do that. Now, at that point, you would have thought Daniel would have went, okay, at least we tried. But no, Daniel doesn't give up. Why? Because this is a conviction. We have preferences where we're willing to change on and be flexible on. And then we have convictions. And when we have convictions, we can't compromise them. And so Daniel doesn't go, well, at least we tried. We'll do whatever they say. No, Daniel then goes to the next one down in the food chain, the guy who's immediately over him. And he goes, tell you what we'll do. Let's do a wee test for 10 days. For 10 days, we will eat vegetables only. Not the king's food. Not the king's wine. We will have vegetables and water. Now, this is not advocating vegetarianism, praise the Lord, okay? This is not where the Bible says we've all to become vegetarians, okay? This was a special, unique situation. But he says, if after 10 days we look any more unhealthy than those who are stuffing their faces with fillet steak and wine, we will will talk about it then. And the guy goes, okay, that sounds fair enough. We can't argue with that. Isn't that brilliant? Like at parents, why don't you, you know, with your kids, try it for two weeks with them. Kids, try it for two weeks. If you don't like it, we'll change it. In the church here, quite honestly, when I'm making some significant changes, you know what I'll say to the team? We'll try it for three months. We'll try it for six months. If it doesn't work, we'll go back. And work. If you come to your boss with a new idea and he's not that keen or she's not that keen on it, go, can we try this for a month or two months and see if it makes a difference? And sales, if you're in sales, why don't you try this product for three weeks or a month? If you, don't have, you know, it's, it's just it's such clever leadership here. There's such wisdom in what Daniel does. There really is no reason. It's only 10 days. And you know what we find at the end of 10 days? He doesn't just look as healthy as the other guys. He looks even healthier. And so the guy who's over them says, I will take your food and I will take your wine home and me and my wife and kids will enjoy it every night and you can have your carrots and your Brussels sprouts and your broccoli, no problem at all. You see, 
we need to know what our convictions are at this time. And my convictions may not be your convictions and yours may not be mine. As a church, we have a conviction in our management team that we will not accept lottery fund money, okay? As a, as a management team, we have had many opportunities to, to receive lottery money and other churches don't have that conviction and that is up to them. But as a church here, we have decided that we will not accept lottery fund money and it has cost us, but we will stick to that conviction. That's our conviction. Not everyone has to have it. As the minister of Hope Church, I have a conviction about the importance of church in people's lives. Not every other minister has the same convictions as me. Not every other member of the congregation has the same convictions of me. I respect that you don't have that conviction. I would like it if you would respect that I do have this conviction. I'm not going to force it on you. Don't force it on me. I have a conviction about what we are doing here. And there are places where I will have certain lines that I cannot cross, and you will have other lines. And maybe I will go... That's not a big deal, but for you it is. And we need to resolve, like Daniel, we need to decide in our hearts what our conviction is going to be. Because these are days where we will be told this is fine, or do, you know, just fall in line, or, 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 or compromise here. Or, or, and we need to go, no, I cannot do that. But you'll not be popular. That's okay. But you'll be labeled with all sorts of labels. That's okay. But you might get thrown in jail. That's okay. Because as we'll see, they were even thrown to the lions because of their convictions. Spoiler alert. As Christians, we need to be people of conviction. Otherwise, we will find ourselves thrown about all over the place. And you know where our convictions come from? They have to come not just from our own feelings, but from the word of God. If we're going to live a life of effectiveness and impact and influence in the 21st century, we need to be a people of conviction. We need flexibility for things that are not worth dying for, but we also need rigidity and inflexibility for those things where we just go, I cannot do that, I cannot. There's a line in the sand and I cannot cross it. And so they do it, and at the end they look much better than everyone else. And I just want to finish the chapter now. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds, and we will see that next week. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked to them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. (laughs) Do you notice Daniel, when he's writing this, calls himself by his own name? In fact, it's quite funny. This is just a wee aside. When he's, when he's writing, Daniel wrote, who wrote this book, when he's writing down the, the Babylonian names, he misspells them quite often. It's kind of his way of poking a wee bit of fun at them. Um, and so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters of his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, which might mean nothing to you, but that means Daniel was there for 60 years and survived four kings, and a new empire came along, and Daniel was still there. In other words, Daniel outlasted the Babylonian empire. Why? Because he was a man of conviction. So he found himself in a second-choice world. And instead of crumbling and falling apart, instead of curling up in a, in a ball and saying, why me? They looked at the second choice world and they said, how can we thrive here? 
How can we make a difference here? How can we influence this place? How can we effectively bring the love of God and the truth of Yahweh into this place? And each of us, when we find ourselves in a second choice world, like we're one we're in at the minute, and the one that you might be in in a different per- circumstance in your life, you need to look at it and, and, and survey it and go, how can I, in this situation, if I can't get out of it, how can I make a difference in it? I have a friend, Adrian. Adrian has, uh, owns a... She's a businesswoman in the South. She owns about 20 different pharmacies. And Adrian was part of our, our church in Dublin. And uh, about three months after our, our Elijah, our little boy, was born, Adrian had a, a little boy called Hugh. But Hugh, from the day he was born, was very ill. And Hugh never left the hospital in the nine months he was alive. And... Like I say, after 277 days, she went to be with the Lord. And suddenly, my friend Adrian, who has everything in the world you'd think that anybody could want. She's, a, she's got an ability to, to create wealth that I've rarely seen in people. She found herself in this second choice world. With, I did the little boy's funeral and this little wicker coffin with this little nine-month-old baby in it. And she could have thrown her head up and turned her back on God. She could have got angry. She could have curled into a ball. Do you know what my friend Adrian did? She noticed that in the nine months that she sat by Hugh's hospital bed, that it was a Temple Children's Hospital in Dublin, that she only lived a few miles away. She was able to go home at night. But children from all over Ireland were sent there, and their parents had nowhere to stay because accommodation in Dublin is so expensive. And she noticed these parents who by the end of the child's stay would be so exhausted and so drained and so wiped that they just had nothing more to give. And so after little Hugh died, Adrian cashed in her pensions. She bought two houses opposite the hospital and she spent a lot of money fixing them up so that there were, I think, ten, ten rooms like hotel rooms, that parents could stay in for free. And every room is decorated by a family who had somebody in the hospital or who lost a child. Because she said, what would you have wanted in the room when your child was in hospital? And so there's a park out the back for kids. There's all of that. And I just think, what an inc- I mean, she won, she won actually Person of the Year in Ireland when we were in Dublin in the awards of the of person of the year. And I just think, what a beautiful picture of somebody who found themselves thrust into a second-choice world, not by any choice of their own, not even by the choice of somebody else, just because we live in a fallen, broken world, who chose in the midst of that to thrive, who chose in the midst of that to see beyond their own hurt and their own need, and who chose in the midst of that, above all, to show the love of Jesus. There's not Bible verses over every door. But I doubt there's one person who goes to stay in that house who doesn't ask, why did you do this? Why did you you pour your life savings into a home that we could come and stay? And she gets to share something of the love of God with them. And I simply want to say to you, whatever second choice world you find yourself in today, you have a choice. 
You have a choice of how to respond. You have a choice of how you're going to react. You have a choice of how you're going to live. Are you going to represent Christ well? Or are you going to curl up in that ball and just, and, and, and just wait for it all to be over? And my prayer for us as a church and my prayer for you watching online is that in these days of upheaval and disruption, we would find ways to represent Jesus well. The world right now needs a church that looks like Jesus. It's very easy to rant and rave and put comments on Facebook and capital letters and exclamation marks. Do you know what's a lot harder? Is to look and go, how can we serve this community? How can I express the love of God in the midst of my own pain and heartache? And I pray that that's what we would be able to do as a community in these days.